0: Let's start with that big document, or sketchy document, was it on Monday? Government's emissions reduction plan, which was released. A turning point in history, according to the Finance Minister. Has the media covered it accordingly?
1: Uh, well, they certainly gave it a lot of prominence. I mean, for example, the next day, the New Zealand Herald, the, the first five pages uh, were all about that and nothing else. And uh, part of the reason for that, I think, was that um, it's ironic we've got, uh, well, we're not actually entirely covered until we've got the budget, on Thursday, so this was just three days before, and it was like a little budget on its own, uh, which meant the press gallery reporters were all over it, so they were told on Monday that it would be midday, the journalists were primed, and there was even, like the budget, a lock-up for this one, so the details wouldn't leak, because obviously there was financially important stuff in there. Um, But the the counter-effect of that is it makes it hard for journalists doing that Reporting on the day to try and sum up what was, I think, 340-odd pages. It uh, makes it hard for them because they only get a certain small run at it. But yeah, there was lots of commentary afterwards. But also, it struck me that it was the exact opposite when the Climate Change Commission kicked off this process uh, in 2020. The media went mad at them because they tried to handpick certain reporters and give them early access so that they could come out with really comprehensive analyses when the embargo was broken. And the media hated that. They thought they all deserved access to it. So, yeah, a different approach this time, but certainly a lot of coverage because, yeah, it is important.
0: Well, even the academics hadn't had a chance to read it. Uh, we spoke on lately on Monday night to Emeritus Professor Ralph Sims, and uh, he'd just received it. And He hadn't had a chance to wade through it. It did have a sort of summation document that came with it. But it didn't end up being such a good news story for the government on the day, did it? Well,
1: partly it did because, uh, you know, the the bits that they highlighted, you know, the the press releases and the breakdowns and so on, became the things on on the day, on the early reports that were highlighted. Just for one example, not really trying to pick on them, but this uh, was how News at 6 played it for the 6pm news audience that night. Grant Robertson now has his emissions answers. And to pay for it, he's making it rain cash for the climate. Almost $3
0: billion, but no
1: debt needed. The government's using a new $4.5 billion fund paid for by the Emissions
0: Trading Scheme, a.k.a. polluters.
1: Yes, yeah, so that was a political reporter Amelia Wade for NewsHub, and she went on to break down the sums of money for various goals and projects, and millions and billions of dollars. Then uh, there was political comment from opposition. Folks And so on. And then they followed that up with a whole separate package from their climate reporter, Isabel Ewing, which was what they called uh, focusing on the cow shaped hole in the plan, which was that there won't be a price on farm emissions uh, until 2025, which is a point a lot of people seized on. So, I mean, it's all, it's all fine. But the, the point was that, I mean, all the money and all the budgets, you know, I think one point that was lost a bit was... Um, whether it was the households that would pay or, as we heard from Amelia Wade there, that you know, polluters picking up the bill but only in the form of those carbon credits.
0: That was a nice turn of phrase—a cow-shaped hole. But uh, did others take a different approach on the day?
1: Yep, there were some. For example, uh, Eloise Gibson, as the climate editor, dedicated to reporting that topic at Stuff. She broke down the announcements by sector, so what was in the plan and what wasn't. Which is, you know, just as news- newsworthy. What, what isn't what, and relevant. And rather than you know going big on those sums of money, you know, she actually turned it around and said. She, she started with the sums of carbon. For example, you know, we've got to meet this emissions budget 72.4 million tonnes per year. She said that means saving, shaving 11.5 million tonnes off it uh, from 2022 to 2025. So, you know, that, that was a way of turning it around. And another perspective, again, Newsroom's Mark Dalder, another one who's dedicated to the topic. Uh, he focused on the real risks that the plan and the budget might not actually be adequate. Uh, to hit that net zero target because it depends so heavily on purchasing those um, carbon credits. And Bernard Hickey, um, another journalist who who actually also seized upon what was missing from it. So quite quickly on the day, he he put out um, an analysis that was headlined Tame Late and Skimpy, that was his view of the plan, and listing a whole bunch of things that weren't there, Uh, congestion charging, no cash for clunkers scheme for two years. Um, so much you know, carbon c- credits and uh, only part of the budget for that. Politically difficult decisions kicked down the track like the agricultural emissions. Um, no ban on petrol and diesel vehicles from 2035, something the Climate Change Commission had addressed right back at the start of the process. So, yeah, very quickly zeroing in on the things that weren't in the government's press releases and, and not in the plans, but just as important.
0: Mm. Very broad strokes was how I read it. Humanity is on a code red now, not in 2050, and even James Shaw disowned it. But did anyone break it down to what it meant for the average person in their daily lives
1: yeah that was what I thought was a bit and that it's hard right you know you get a 340 page document and uh, epic sums of money it's it's hard to do that um, but Thomas Coglin of the Herald I'd give him kudos for approaching it in exactly that way trying to think of it in terms of households and he had a, a nice line towards the end he said um, this plan tries to strip emissions from our current way of life but ignores difficult questions over whether we really need to change our current way of life to reduce emissions. That's the politically difficult bit, I guess. And he said, the political necessity of such choices has been well litigated for 30 years. And whether or not those political imperatives are scientific folly, the next 30 years will tell. Now, usually ending your article with, you know, time will tell or we shall see is a a bit of a cop out. But in this case, it's, um, it's absolutely the point.
0: Colin, the budget coming up tomorrow. Uh, Advanced publicity says it'll have a health focus as well as climate change. Health workers are on strike this week. Is that good or bad timing? (laughs) Yes, I'm not sure, but possibly not. Um,
1: Around 10,000 allied health workers walked off the job this week, and that disrupted uh, DHB's operations. But, you know, we've seen weeks now or months of nurses' industrial action and also the government's immigration. Uh, policy recently reduced and uh, nurses uh, infuriated to learn or the unions that uh, they're not in that three-month fast track like doctors and engineers. And as we know, the huge shortage from nine to noon, Catherine Ryan was talking about um, a complete severe shortage of, of nurses and specialists uh, for dementia services and so on. So struck me this is a real important area. And the thing that got me going on this actually was not the coverage of the strike and the industrial relations, but it was uh, the Today FM on Monday, uh, Tover O'Brien's breakfast show. They have a daily panel discussion thing called Picardero, and former Attorney General and Cabinet Minister Chris Finlayson was on. And uh, when he was asked, "What's on your mind?", uh, he said this:
0: "I think I've said on this program before." Um, I owe over nurses a lot after a little problem I had at the end of last year and um, the service provided up at Wellington Hospital uh, at outpatients was uh, absolutely outstanding and those people just don't earn enough for the tremendous work that they do. I mean outpatients at 10 o'clock at night was Piccadilly Circus uh, and they have to deal with some pretty extreme situations. I'd really like to help them. Mm, well pretty common response don't you think? Lots of support and love for nurses. Yeah, I
1: mean, I think everyone says that. Um, and, for example, on that same panel, the other guest was uh, Sue Bradford. I guess, you know, she's the maybe the left-leaning one, and uh, Chris Finlayson uh, to the right, being a former uh, national-led uh, government minister. Um, but she said almost exactly the same thing, um, along with uh, agreement from the host, Tova O'Brien. These people
0: needed to be treated with the respect and with the pain conditions they deserve right now. There you go, Jacinda Ardern. Some top tips from our panel every morning. Good policy advice from Sue Bradford and Chris Finlayson. Thank you both very much for your time this morning. It's three minutes to eight.
1: (laughs) Yes, I am not sure that the prime minister wants um, health policy advice from any of those people. But the, the thing about what Chris Finlayson was saying, everybody who ends up using the health service says this. Nurses are wonderful, you know how how great they are. Of course, you know when you are in a position of need, uh, you are going to feel a bit emotional about it. And it made me think. Maybe this is mean. And I don't mean to be mean to him, but it did make me think of um, the RNZ concert. Uh, debacle, let's call it. When that became an issue, he got heavily involved in that. Uh, he was a part of a, a, a threat, uh, or that uh, there could be legal action if Rnz took uh, concert off FM. A couple of other QCs teamed up with him and some orchestras to threaten a court case if they went through with it. If you use a service and you know you've got the means and you've got a voice in the media, you know us, we the people are going to hear all about it. Um, but it just makes me think that why the the I'd love to hear the media report. Uh, a bit more um, at, at length and in depth about quite why it is at a time when hospital services are so critical uh, that uh, the, this prolonged problem with employing, retaining and paying uh, nurses just, just seems to go on and on and on.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and speaking of workers in fair pay... A bit of an embarrassment over a story about fair pay agreements.
1: Yeah, I think old school uh, industrial relations reporters such as we used to have would have had a field day with this one. So this was uh, on the Herald's website on Monday. A headline pops up, a proposal to change fair pay agreements condemned by UN Labour Agency and Business NZ. And the story began, New Zealand risks being placed on a list of the world's worst case breaches of international labour law if it continues with its proposal to change fair play agreements to include compulsory collective bargaining. Um, It said New Zealand's on a list along with Afghanistan and Venezuela and just ahead of Nigeria. And Business NZ's chair said the signal intention to breach from a country like New Zealand is a very serious matter.
0: And who wrote that?
1: <laughs> well, this was all provided, it turns out, by Business New Zealand. So, I mean, we know ah. Business NZ has problems with the fair pay agreements because, you know, it restricts their freedom to bargain on their own terms. But, yes. you know, so that's there. Kirk that. Hope. Yeah, that, yeah, Kirk Hope, exactly. That's that's his position. He's the uh, the chair. And... He's got press releases they put out uh, claiming the government's phone was off the hook; they're not listening. So clearly, they've got a strong position on this, which everyone in the media would know who's followed the issue. Um, but it seems weird that the United Nations um, uh, International Labour Organisation would take a stance against uh, something like the fair pay agreements as proposed by the current government, because I mean they're mm. not they're not a labour union or anything, but they've been around for a hundred years, and the the object is you know fair standards of 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 employment uh, around the world so that seems strange
0: It does, a contradiction contradiction between the the UN's Labour Agency and Business New Zealand so is that the main problem with the story?
1: Well, yeah, because you look through the story and there's nothing in it, uh, in the initial one, to say that the ILO, International Labour Organization, was actually opposed to it, much less condemning it, as the headline said. So when people went out looking for this and pointed this out on social media, the the story suddenly disappeared um, from the Herald for a bit online and then and then came back in a bit of a different form. Really? Yeah, yeah. So it came back with uh, the new headline was, uh, let's see, proposal for fair pay agreements could put New Zealand under the Roth. wrath wrath of the UN's International Labour Organization. So that was a bit of a subtle change, but no condemnation from the ILO at all, as per that previous headline. But the claim was still there. New Zealand was on a worst breaches list alongside Afghanistan and uh, just ahead of Nigeria. Um, But people couldn't find this list online. So then Stuff did their own story about it, investigated and found out that Business New Zealand had effectively made up that title of the worst breaches. And the only reason New Zealand was on it it turns out it was because Business New Zealand itself had petitioned the ILO to consider whether fair pay agreements might be a breach of international law. And uh, by the way, that, that list, you know, being just ahead of Nigeria, well, that was only because these countries that have uh, are going to be considered uh, for breaches... Um, was alphabetical, so that's the reason oh. New Zealand was just there in Nigeria. Uh, uh,
0: that's that's the, the tale of breaches on fire, isn't it? So <laughs> yeah. it wasn't just spin, but it was actually complete fabrication from Business NZ, and it was recycled in the Herald as news.
1: Well, they made up the title, this, this worst breaches list that actually doesn't exist. It's a, a, um, it's I can actually read you the full. The actual list of the document is the preliminary li- sorry preliminary list of cases as submitted by social partners to the Committee on the Application of Standards. Uh, so they put that jazzy title on it. Um, but the the thing was um, they say this is still a serious matter and they want it to be considered. There could be a breach uh, if this is ever considered by this ILO committee. Even that's not <laughs> sure. sure. So pretty much... The story then became uh, stuff wrote it up totally different. Business New Zealand is being accused of misinformation in its handling of an ILO document, which implied uh, New Zealand had been found to be in breach of international labour law when it hasn't. So, uh, but Business New Zealand is still unrepentant, saying you know no country uh, needs to end up on this list if there's no case to answer. Um, so no smoke, no fire. But you know they're the ones who created the smoke, if you see what I mean. And I do. I went and looked on their website. They've still got a, a press release up there on their own website saying that New Zealand is on the naughty list of, uh, of international labour law.
0: Is that the word they use? hmm Yeah. Naughty, naughty seats. Naughty list. So they've responded. What about the Herald? Have they responded to the criticism for publishing it?
1: Uh, well, they have. Uh,
0: we got a little statement
1: from... Um, the Herald, uh, who said, um, we take this seriously. Um, we uh, change our stories if we're found to have made a mistake. And they have indeed added a couple of footnotes. For example, um, one, I've got it right in front of me here, says this story has been updated to correct the statement originally made by Business NZ that the ILO list was a, quotes, worst case list. Uh, so they've, they've told their listeners about that. But that claim about it... Um, being up with the uh, 40 countries on a worst case list was up for quite some time and the herald uh, through business editor duncan bridgman did also say uh, we accepted this information in good faith uh, from business nz so pretty clearly that was uh, the source of it, um, and they have s- accepted that they should have looked closer at the source document before uh, rushing into print with their story. Um, so yeah, pretty clear what's, what's happened really here is um, Business NZ has convinced them that this, this is a story, and they haven't actually checked that there wasn't such a list, or they weren't aware, I think, of the fact that New Zealand was only on that list in the first place because... Um, Business NZ itself uh, alerted the ILO to it and wants them to consider whether there's a possibility of the breach of the law. But certainly nothing like that first headline of condemnation that the Herald uh, jumped to, that uh, that certainly wasn't justified. And now there's a bit of a it's backfired on Business NZ because councils around the country, uh, including the Auckland Council and Mayor Phil Goff, have said it's totally unacceptable what Business NZ have done. So, uh, yep, this, uh, this effort to spin the news uh, has just not worked out for them at all well.
0: Well, I think I know the answer to this, but what's the moral of the story? Yeah, well,
1: was check anything that a lobby group gives you uh, in a handout. And, and not, not jumping to conclusions. I think the Herald really stretched when they put that word condemnation in their headline, because there was certainly no, no evidence of that. And that's how they got into trouble, because people read the story looking for it, because it just seemed odd that the ILO would, would be taking the stance. And uh, yep, just wasn't there.
0: And on the subject of corrections and clarifications, you have one of your own for Media Watch.
1: Yeah, a little one. Not not a big deal, this one necessarily. But a couple of weekends ago on the Media Watch programme, we looked at the coverage of the ram raids issue and how there have been so many headlines about that. A few headlines like Auckland youth out of control and so on, making the point really that when there's really prominent reporting of stuff like this, it can have the effect of... Uh, amplifying youth crime when, in fact, it had been in decline. So these headlines can be misleading in in this coverage. Uh, So when it's exceptional and startling stuff like ram raids, you know, tends to uh, get elevated a lot in the media. And we we kind of pointed out this can occur in other contexts. And um, TVNZ's Kristen Hall did a good report about this, which was people turning up to hospital fearing uh, without reason that they had heart problems caused by the COVID-19 vaccine. And a cardiologist said, look, people are turning up here and they think they've got myocarditis or pericarditis because they've heard that this could be an elevated risk of this after the vaccine. But almost all of them worrying unnecessarily. And uh, Dr. Brian Betty from the Royal NZ College of GPs said uh, they'd seen from the, the end of last year and the start of this year and throughout the year then, people had seen publicity about these two conditions and turning up fearing uh, that they're affected after having the vaccine. So uh, we mentioned one such story about this, which was the project show on 3, which featured a guy called Hayden Harvey, who's one of the very few who's actually contracted um, pericarditis after taking the Pfizer vaccine. But their story was fine, quite responsible. He was telling the story of a a guy in a terrible position and sharing his story. And um, the project made the point of telling viewers that um, you're much more likely uh, to get myocarditis and perigarditis uh, from COVID rather than from the vaccine. So they made that crystal clear. But you know, we'd said that that story circulated on social media channels and some of those channels were devoted to vaccine misinformation. So people just saw it, made the link between uh, the illness and the vaccine. And we said, and that had an impact. There's some listeners hearing that on the radio or the or our podcast might have assumed that people had seen the project report itself and they'd run off to hospital fearing uh, that they too had the same problem as Hayden Harvey but that wasn't the case. Uh, There was no evidence that that report caused any uptick in people presenting the problem. The problem is people grabbing stories like that, sharing it out of context with misinformation on social media. That in the end is what causes the problem of uh, people fearing they might have health conditions that they don't and blaming it on the COVID vaccine.
0: And finally Colin, a cartoon that's caused offence.
1: Very few people would have seen uh, this cartoon. It was on the touchy topic of Three Waters in the Greymouth Star newspaper, which only sells about 4,000 copies locally. But uh, it got shared on social media because, um, yeah, this cartoon by the artist D.T. Henry was um, was pretty out there on Three Waters.
0: Well, I've seen it, but for those who haven't, can you give us a detailed description? What does it show?
1: Uh, yeah, it's so there's three individuals, look like a kind of, Pakea family approaching a table, guy at the table holding out glasses of water to them and asking, do you ratepayers want your water? And at the other end of the table is a Māori woman with a moko and two jugs of water in front of her who's yelling, it's not theirs, it's mine.
0: So who is the artist and is this characteristic of that paper?
1: Well, I don't think so. This is David Thomas Henry, or D.T. Henry, as he signs his pictures. Uh, I wasn't familiar with him, but he's done cartoons for some time, I think, because they did a collection of his in 2014, uh, also in the West Coast Messenger and Hokitika Guardian. He's a Hokitika resident, I believe. Uh, so he's um, he's not a novice, but um, yeah, I think his style is um, old school.
0: And widely condemned.
1: Yeah, I mean, no reason you can't do a cartoon about the tensions and misunderstandings about a divisive issue like Three Waters, indeed, a perfect topic, really. But, like, this one, um, I mean, it it gave people the impression that he was saying, you know, there was kind of factual errors in it as if, you know, Māori won't take or own the water under Three Waters. No one will be denied water by their council. And some people saw that image of Māori woman shouting it's mine as sort of stereotyping, as if, you know, Māori are, are, are trying to be greedy kind of guardians of the stuff or deny... Other people, and that's just just not what, what was happening. and Rod Emerson, a uh, long-serving cartoon at The Herald said on Twitter, uh, "The foundation of any political cartoon is facts. Uh, this is incorrect about three waters, plus the tone he said is racist, and it should never have seen the light of day, and he thinks it'll end up at the media council, um, you know, the, the newspaper's watchdog, or even you know, the Human Rights Commission tribunal.
0: And what about the paper, how have they responded, and David Thomas Henry, the artist?
1: Well, on uh, Tuesday, there was um, an apology uh, on the front page, just in brief, uh, on the left-hand side of the front page. The editor, Paul Madgwick, said the cartoon's in bad taste. It was an error of judgment. I apologise for offence taken. And Interestingly, um, he is actually the chair of Te Runanga ao Makafio, a uh, hapu of Ngai in South Westland, which I didn't realise until uh, Stuff reported it. So that was interesting. But the cartoonist himself, Healy, said, look... Um, The Māori character at the end of the table is meant to be Nanaya Mahuta, representing the government. And he says she's not representing all Māori, or that wasn't my attention. The guy handing the water to the family was the council, trying to give water to the ratepayers. So she, Mahuta, was the minister telling the ratepayers the water wasn't the councils to give But hers, and he says, "Look, it's you know the fact that she's Maori—that's neither here nor there. She's just the minister. I would have drawn the minister, whoever it is. You know, she's pushing for three waters. They want control of the water, and ratepayers and councillors here on the west coast are objecting to it. So he says, in that context, he he didn't see it as racist."
0: So what happens next? Where does it go from here?
1: Well, we'll wait and see uh, if any formal complaint is made. But it's a fairly high bar to get to these um, principles regarding. Denigration. Um, we've had other cases, the El Nisbet cartoons a few years back in the press, uh, depicting um, uh, sort of stereotypically depicting um, uh, Pakeha or, or uh, Pacifica families on the topic of welfare and free school meals. Uh, those ones. Um, there was an apology issue for those, but uh, they went all the way through MP lewis Awall to the Human Rights um, Commission Tribunal, uh, but they did not find uh, that they shouldn't have been published. So it's hard to say. Um, it's possible the owners, Allied Press, will act on this because they fired their cartoonist, Garrick Tremaine, from the ODT about a cartoon, a terrible cartoon, which made light of the measles epidemic in Samoa. That was in 2019. Um, and, uh, yeah, that uh, involved a, a real heavy apology from uh, the editor, Barry Stewart, back then. And we haven't seen Tremaine in that paper ever since. So uh, we'll see. But, I mean, if if there is a complaint and that argument of Healy's is accepted that uh, Nanao Huta character is not representing all of Māori, so there's no stereotyping going on, it's a direct political commentary, um, well, they may agree that uh, while it's not exactly all that subtle, um, it's it's not actually uh, racist and it's just uh, not been done terribly well. And I think that might be the crux of the problem, that his style is pretty old-fashioned and unsubtle. And when people went back through a lot of his previous cartoons that have been published, um, he's got a lot of them on his own Facebook page. There's one depicting uh, people having a hangi and uh, eating conservation, uh, conservation minister Eugenie Sage. Um, and as people have pointed out, this harks back to sort of ancient sort of trope type newspaper cartoons about Pakeha ending up in cooking pots that were published, you know, 80, 90 and 100 years ago in New Zealand newspapers. So a bit of a throwback. And, uh, yeah, clearly the the papers decided um, within a day that it's something they ought not to have published at all.
0: Well, thank you very much, Colin. Very interesting. I appreciate your time this evening. And we'll talk to you a couple of weeks' time.
1: Sure thing. I'll look forward to it.